May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. I want to begin with a few thank yous first to Dr. Tucker for that um, introduction to the folks who did the worship for leading us that way, and to a few of my friends who aren't normally part of the Truett community but who have made their way here this morning. I'm grateful to be with you. If you're part of Truett, I'm going to go ahead and assume one of two things is true about you. I imagine either you are a student beginning to sweat finals, or you are a professor who is making late amendments to an SBL paper. And consequently, uh, neither of you have the time to pay attention to the mostly abysmal list of Christian pop literature. The good news, though, is that pastors do. Uh, I didn't actually read it, the book, but a friend told me about a chapter in Bob Goff's book, Love Does. Bob, if you don't know, is a lawyer and shares about his journey to get there. Naive about the way that the LSAT worked, Bob gingerly showed up for the test and uh, didn't know about the comprehensive process that students often go through, and so he did poorly. But audacity and persistence turned out to be some of Bob's gifts, so he headed to the law school of his choice and scheduled a meeting with the dean. There he boldly told the dean that all you need to do is to tell me to buy my books. The dean was courteous without compromising and soon let him out his door. But this phrase, all you need to do is to tell me to buy my books, became sort of a campaign slogan for Bob. Bob planted himself outside the dean's office every day for a week before school started. And when the dean would pass by, would say, all you need to do is to tell me to buy my books. The strategy didn't work. He became background noise. School started. But Bob kept going back to that office. And about day three or four, the dean came out, and Bob describes that his body language was different. He made eye contact. He approached Bob, and he said, go get your books. That would be a great segue to talk about Luke's persistent widow, but that is not what I'm doing today. I found more meaning in Bob's commentary on his experience. He says, words can launch us. Words can also destroy. The Christian Recorder is the publication of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. They were first, the first to begin peddling the lie in the form of a children's nursery rhyme in an 1862 edition when they wrote, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I've got about 100 hours of marital counseling experience that would beg to differ. Words can cut a deep wound. They hurt. Words can also offer relief or sentence the heart to a stage of fear. Imagine you're sitting, for example, in the waiting office and the doctor approaches and she either pronounces malignant or benign. Words can liberate. I became a quintessential rebellious teenager in my junior year of high school. I began drinking alcohol smoking marijuana, and worst of all for my evangelical parents, began sleeping with my girlfriend who, by the grace of God, later became my wife. Three truths and no lies that my mom read in one sitting of my history notebook. I'll never forget when I got home that day. Stuff got rocky, and my rebellion pushed me out the door into my best friend's dad's bachelor pad. It was spring. I was a sprinter. We were in the midst of track season. And in the midst of the chaos, I had missed a morning workout. I saw my coach later that day. And so, naturally, he pulled me aside to ask what had happened. I gave him the truthful but trite response, family problems. Looking back, I'm sure he heard not just my words, but also saw the brokenness in my eyes. Because in response, he did not utter words about my lack of commitment or my priorities. He looked me in the eye and simply said, I just want you to know that the only person that you can control is you. 
I still to this day don't know his religious background, but I do know that he heard from the Holy Spirit that day because that is exactly what I needed to hear. Words can get you into trouble. Like many sophomores, my high school English class was reading Bill Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Our teacher, Miss Balda, did good and careful historical work to make sure we understood the soothsayer's famous line, Beware the Ides of March. Back up a few days. Miss Balda had made a few phone calls to parents, including mine, to report on the excessive disruptive behavior of their children. So my best friend Charlie and I had an idea. We were standing in the high school office and spotted a school bus loading zone sign that had clearly been the casualty of some poor and reckless driving. Waiting for repair, we grabbed that sign, took a Sharpie marker, and wrote on it, Beware the Ides of the Children Whose Parents Got Called, and we hung that on Miss Balda's door. That seemed like a funny gesture until we found ourselves in the principal's office with the local sheriff a half hour later. Grace recognized that we were adolescents, and that was a stern, you had better be careful. But the trajectory of that story can have serious ramifications. If you don't believe me, just ask Don Imus, Paula Dean, or Donald Sterling. All this talk about words got me thinking about John's prologue. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was in fact God himself. I wondered, was this just a handy etymological coincidence? Or did John really mean to offer us the word word as the most appropriate metaphor? Turns out there is no small amount of data on this particular topic, so I had to limit my conversation partners to Gail O'Day, mostly because this is the one book in the New Testament that David Garland hasn't written a commentary on. (laughs) She tells me that the cultural boundaries surrounding the Mediterranean were blurry, Hellenism and Judaism both had opinions about Logos. Gnosticism had opinions about Logos. Stoicism had its own understanding. But the Johannine school was undoubtedly Jewish, even if Ray Brown and Lou Martin would have us believe disgruntedly so. So I give Philo the definitive word on Logos. Logos is the creative plan of God to govern the world. It seems that John, being the creative theologian he is, has taken on the suppositions of all these different understandings and uh, baptized them in the name of Jesus. Still, I think my question went unanswered. So in a move that Todd still would render questionable, I set down my Bible to see what the church fathers had to say. Why, you wonder? Because Truett's patristics professor bears a striking resemblance to an American Jesus, and I believe that's what he would do. <laughs> I can make that joke. He goes to my church. Turns out that the early church distinguished between the primordial state of Logos as God's reason from his emanation as creative speech. Helpful, if not a bit cryptic, but at least this time the Cappadocians are giving me something more objective than just appreciate the mystery. Moving from the east to the west, I found the figure Jerome, who is often helpful because we know Latin well enough to see his intentionality. It is clear, for example, that he picked verbum, word, as opposed to sermo, speech, A move, Brian Brewer would have you know, troubled both Erasmus and Calvin, who preferred sermo and argued that word is wisdom in relation to God himself. But can any discussion about word be complete without the thoughts of Karl Barth? According to Princeton, no. But be careful, because as soon as you include Barth in your discussion, Princeton will also let you know you don't really understand Barth. Or at least they just say that to each other. I'm just kidding. In any case, I think we can all... (laughs) confess our collective gratitude for Kemlin Bender. We got one of the good ones. Bart, you'll remember, argued that word shows up as a hat trick, revelation, scripture, and preaching, and punctuated his hypothesis with the claim that God's word 
means that God speaks. So I have, after thoroughly having drenched myself in the thought of theological giants, I then remembered the near infinite wisdom of a man who long stood in his own pastoral shoes and had a nearly flawless record in Professor Fight Club. With his gruff, I eat Marines for breakfast voice, Levi Price once said, and I'm not making this up, I don't mean to offend you theologians, but I believe if the Bible says something, it's true. So Todd still will be glad to know that I picked my Bible up yet again and made a very obvious exegetical discovery. It's not just that John intends to give a nod towards Genesis. It's likely he used his Septuagint to copy it purposefully. John would have us know that this gospel, which has the power of recreation, will be wrought with words. Just as God once put on this display of showcase of ex nihilo awesomeness through what he said in the beginning, he will yet again, with the word of power, create a community of redeemed hearts and a new beginning. When I first started my job at UBC, I longed for an invitation to come to speak to Truett or really anywhere besides UBC for that matter. You see, pastors have this laborious task of preaching to our communities every week. With the care of individuals in mind, we prepare words to speak. But guest speakers, I mean, they can be like a bull in a china cabinet. They get to speak prophetically. Tony Campolo, for example, can cuss at you and make you feel bad about starving kids in Africa two minutes later. Speaking to a community without uh, relational repercussion seemed glorious to me. Then something happened. I remember something else that Levi Price told me. He said that after about five years, that's when you become people's pastor. And about some point around that time, I noticed that people started dropping their lives into my hands. And when that happens, you had better take it seriously because you have an immense opportunity to speak meaning in people's lives. And I'm not talking about the sermons on Sunday mornings, though that's part of the gig. I'm talking about those precious times when people invite you into their lives to speak to them. It could be in your office. It could be in a hospital. It could be at a bar. The moments are never scripted, but you will learn to recognize them quickly because all of a sudden, the confessions become more real, the questions more honest, and the invitations more sincere. And this is a gift that the prophet is never given. America is a low-context, monochronic culture in which words are chiefly valued for their utilitarian function. Small talk with its sly ability to keep everything impersonal reigns supreme, but I'm here to tell you this morning, not so with you. You are called to be a pastor and your speech will be drenched with the truth of the eternal The word resides in your words, and you need to speak with that conviction. Barbara Brown Taylor has written a book called Speaking of Sin, and in it she has uh, a chapter titled uh, Sin is Our Only Hope, which means not to be inflammatory, but rather unlike the medical community, which uses the word sick, or the legal community, which uses the word insane, she argues the church uses the word sin to describe their problem with humans. I was reminded while I was reading this that, yes, indeed, the church does have its own vocabulary. We do speak our own language. We confess. We sing doxology. We rebuke and we correct. And we can bless. We speak words that have potential to penetrate the heart, convert the imagination, and save the soul. 
Let me give you an example. Paul is often known as a theological giant. I doubt anyone would contest that claim. But I also think he is sometimes overlooked as a wordsmith. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Having so fond of an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. Romans 1, 11 and 12, For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift, that it may establish you. That is, that I may be encouraged in the mutual faith of both you and me. Author Marianne Bird grew up with a disfigured face. She says, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to her to have suffered an accident than have been born different. So when kids would ask her what happened to her face, she would lie and say she fell over and cut her lip on a piece of glass. Bird describes, though, a teacher that changed her life. Miss Leonard was her name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, Miss Leonard would give the children a hearing test. This is what Bird says in her autobiography. Miss Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. I knew from years past, as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher would, sitting at her desk, whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue. Or, do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth. They were seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard whispered, I wish you were my little girl. Tom Long tells me those are the things that saints say. I'm going to conclude with the story that I pulled right out of Dr. Gregory's playbook. I've been looking for this sermon illustration since 2005 when he gave it. About 40,000 Google searches later, a friend gave me a tip and I found it actually in that word book that they had printed all these years. <laughs> Hal Warlick was the pastor of 7th and James right here in town in the 1970s. He went to Harvard Divinity School because he couldn't get into Truett. He had a <laughs> professor, uh, Dr. Ralph Lazaro. Lazaro was independently wealthy. He had a nice home in Marblehood, Massachusetts, filled with Italian art and impressive furnishings. Included in this set of fancy things was, were the set of demitas for sipping coffee. Lazaro made a ritual of inviting first-year students over to his house and a few second years to help serve the, the meal. In this particular story, the second years included Hal Warlick. These students, these first years, were from small towns. They were already intimidated to be at Harvard, and so Lazaro's house only intensified those feelings. One particular lady was nervous. She picked up her demitas, fumbled it, it fell out of her hand, and crashed to the floor. We can imagine the mood. The first years froze, and after a nervous second, Lazaro tossed his demitas over his shoulder into the fireplace and declared, I'm glad that someone has started the Lazaro family tradition of breaking the cup. He shot a look to Warlick and the other second years to follow suit, to which they did, and eventually the courageous freshmen joined in, thinking they were celebrating some odd New England tradition. Warlick later cornered his professor and in a private moment asked him about what had just happened. And this is what his professor said. Those cups are valuable, but not nearly as valuable as a person's spirit. 
I hope there is nothing I own or ever hope to own that would not be worth breaking to save a person's spirit. You belong to the guild of word speakers. You can shape lives or you can break lives. Just know that what you say matters.